First Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God might be glorified through Christ Jesus. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. What great mercy you have shown us, Lord Jesus, that you would, for a time, set aside your glory, your privileges as God, to become one of us, that you might die for our sins, to open the way back to the Father. You have led us out of darkness and sin and death and judgment, that we might know life and love and victory, and glory. And we have gathered before you today with all of our worries and pain and in our weakness and need to thank you, to exalt you, to submit to you, to proclaim you. Uh, give us understanding of this wonderful text today. And Lord, also give us the resolve to obey its commands. Amen. One of the most essential questions we could ask ourselves is, why do I get up in the morning? What do I live for? What is my purpose in life? These are all really the same question. They get at identity and meaning. And at some point in each of our lives, each of us asks that question. And your answer to that question gives your life its meaning. It gives your life its direction. As God's child, you have been given meaning and purpose. You have been, you could say, restored to God's original purpose for you. You have been restored to God's original design for your life, your existence. That designed purpose is something precious. It is, as a child of God, something of infinite value. Do you see it in Peter's words here? It's found in chapter 4, verse 11, at the end of the text that I just read. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. For God to be glorified is for God to be the center of attention, the center of value and prizing. For God to be glorified is for him to be seen and marveled at. When we speak of God's glory, God's glory is intrinsic to his person. It is who he is. It is his being. 
but to glorify him is to put who God is in all of his beauty, in all of his glory on high, to make him known that he is lifted up for praise, that he is delighted in. It is argued, and I think they are right, that God's glory is the theme of the Bible. And Peter has been saying to us now for a couple of chapters that our faithfulness as exiles, our faithfulness in this life while we are in exile brings God glory. Peter has been calling us to remain faithful. So how is it that God is glorified in everything through Jesus Christ? Well, God is glorified by our faithfulness. And Peter says here first that God is glorified by our faithfulness to suffer evil. Now, we've been talking a lot about suffering evil. And suffering evil, we mean enduring harm that is done to us because we follow Jesus, because we are exiles. This is what Peter means by suffering. When he speaks of suffering, he doesn't mean it in a general way. The Bible has a lot to say about trials and tribulation and suffering, all kinds of pain and illness and uh, setbacks and loss and death. But Peter, when he talks about suffering, he is talking about persecution. He is talking about suffering harm that is done to us, whether that's verbal insults, whether that is being ignored and marginalized, or whether that is enduring physical abuse. That's what Peter means by suffering. And these 11 verses are the end of a section that Peter started back in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Remember these. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation." You can see that here in chapter 4, Peter repeats some of these very same uh, thoughts and terms that he used in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. The passions of the flesh, the references to Gentiles who are those who are outside the faith. It's unbelievers. Here uh, in chapter 2, he talks about them speaking against us. Here he uses the word malign. And in both places, he speaks of God and his glory. So Peter then, back in chapter 2, tells us how to respond to this evil, how to respond to harm being done against us. He then explains how Christ suffered for righteousness and was, in the end, victorious, how his suffering was his victory. And now Peter exhorts us in chapter 4, verse 1, to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. That is, arm yourselves with the same perspective that Jesus had. Brace yourself to endure evil and injustice against you in the same way that Jesus endured. Because... Peter says, someone who is ready to suffer in the flesh is someone done with sin. This is, he says here, they have ceased from sin, which doesn't mean we don't sin anymore, that we no longer struggle with sin, that we no longer face temptation and at times stumble and fall into it. But rather what he means is that we are done with sin. Someone who who has embraced the reality of suffering harm for Jesus' namesake is someone who has parted ways with sin. You have forsaken the path of sin, even if you fall into it at times. You see, no one who still clings to sin 
who still clings to their own prominence, their own importance. No one who, who expresses only a half-hearted commitment to Christ will long endure persecution for Jesus' sake. This is why persecution of the church actually purifies the church. It is why I think in America over the couple of centuries that we have been in existence that our churches and churches in the West in general are populated with people who aren't really Christians, who have never really given their lives to the Lord Jesus, especially in parts of our culture where it is the social norm to attend church. It's because there is no price to pay. See, when there's a a price to pay, those who really are not committed, those who have really parted ways with sin, they don't stay. They don't stay in the church. You won't find false Christians. You won't find social Christians, half-hearted believers in places like North Korea or Iraq price is too high, and no one's going to pay the cost for something they really don't believe. Peter is saying that by committing yourself to Jesus' stance, by bracing yourself for rejection and hostility, that you forsake the path of sin and the tragedy that it leads to, and so you bring God glory. It glorifies God in the world when his people make the break with sin and say, it's going to cost me. And it may not cost you the, the same degree every day in every place in the world. But Peter is saying, arm yourselves with the same thinking. Think of your life and your circumstances and your possessions, all of them as expendable because you will follow Jesus even when you are maligned or spoken against. It must bring God glory because it demonstrates a decisive shift in your allegiance, in what you are faithful to, It is a decisive shift in your purpose for living, a shift in what you live for. Verse 2, we no longer live for human passions, we live for the will of God. So God is glorified, first of all, by our faithfulness to suffer evil. Secondly, God is glorified by our faithfulness to God's will, our faithfulness to God's will. To glorify God in everything means to live for the rest of the time in the flesh. Again, in the flesh means under the domination of the world, the era of flesh or the realm of the flesh. It's not just necessarily talking about physical body, though when you live in this life, you are living in a physical body, but it's talking about a realm, this life. That's what Peter means. Live for the rest of this life, which he also calls the time of our exile, back in chapter one. The time until human history ends and God deals with the human race. Peter's already pointed us to this event a number of times. He has called it salvation in the last time. A couple of times he has called it the revelation of Jesus Christ. He has called it the day of visitation. So what Peter's saying is, for the rest of the time in the flesh is whatever time you have left. Whatever you've got left. None of us know how long that is. We do know that life is fragile. And your life, with all of its meaning... And purpose hinges on this, what you live for, what you live for. 
Are you living for human passions? He's not talking about being passionate for things like um, hobbies or things you enjoy necessarily. He's talking, he's using passions here in a sinful or a negative way. Don't think just sexual passions either, though those are emphasized in verse 3. But here when he says living for human passions, he means, he means everything, wealth, comfort, do you live for the praise of others? Do you live for gaining popularity, for acceptance? Do you live for power, influence? He's talking about whatever enslaves you that you buy into to bring yourself satisfaction. That's human passions. Do you live for human passions? Human passions the way Peter puts it here, are the opposite of God's will, which means they are desires driven by self-will, ultimately self-worship. Putting myself in the center of my life. Living for the will of God, on the other hand, means placing God's will at the center of your life and your thinking. And what is God's will? that in everything he may be glorified through Jesus Christ. That is God's will. It's not something hidden you need to go find. We usually talk about God's will as something that has to do with decisions that we make. The Bible talks about God's will as that which he has revealed, that which he has declared to be so. How he wills that to happen is unfolded in the scriptures. So God's will is what is revealed, not what is hidden. And you know why as Christians we are faithful to God's will? Why we are devoted to it? Because God's child, a Christian, is happy only when he or she is living for the will of God. When God's will is at the center of everything. Now, that doesn't mean, again, that doesn't mean that we always perfectly live that way. But I tell you what, if you belong to God and his will is not at the center of your life, you will be miserable. Praise God, you will be miserable. God's will is to be at the center of everything, even if it is his will that we suffer for Jesus' sake. That's really what Peter's getting at, the ultimate price. He's already talked about the will of God being that we suffer for Jesus' name in the same way that Jesus suffered. So that's how God is glorified by our faithfulness to his will. Be faithful to suffer evil when it comes. And we are to be faithful to God's will. We live for it. That is the new purpose. That is the new meaning that the Christian has. Thirdly, we are to be faithful to the end. God is glorified by our faithfulness to the end. Look at verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. These are what the world pursues. These are what the culture is driven by. Peter uses this term again, Gentiles, those outside the faith, those who don't belong to God. And he's not saying that every non-Christian necessarily lives the way that he describes here to the degree that he describes it. But on the whole, this is how the world lives. This is what the culture pursues. This is what it is driven by. And however you have pursued these things before coming to Jesus, Peter says that time has passed. 
That is past, and it was enough. The time that is past suffices. That is oversufficient. It belongs to the past, and you are done with it. God has given you eyes to see through the lies, to see through the emptiness and the meaningless of living this way. And you were done with it because you were no longer under a delusion. You're no longer under the delusion that these kinds of pursuits make you happy, that they satisfy And it's because God has enabled you to see that. He has given you these eyes. As Peter said in chapter 1, verse 18, you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. These are the feudal ways. It's pursuing these things. But listen, you are free. You don't ever have to go back. You are free from these things. But there's a cost because they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. This is just a synonym, another term for speak against. They malign you. They speak evilly about you. They're going to accuse you of things that are not true. They're going to paint you with a certain brush. The world responds to our lifestyle with shock and hostility. They are baffled. And that kind of surprise is understandable. But why the hostility? Why do they malign us when we don't join them? When we say, no, that's wrong. That is morally evil. That's sin. It is because if you are living distinctively, those who live for their passions are struck in their conscience. Because they are made in the image of God, they know. If you look at Romans chapter 1 and the plight of the human race in its rebellion against God, it is not that they do not know. It is that they suppress the knowledge of God. They suppress it. And when you and I, when Christians, go against the flow, the flood as Peter calls it here, and refuse to join in, we kind of... Force that suppressed truth up. We force it into view. And the world does not like that. They see and understand our refusal to join them as an implicit condemnation of their lives, even if we don't intend that. Our goal is is to be faithful. It's to remain faithful to God. It's not, it is not to uh, condemn. Now, we can correct and we can say God says, but the ultimate judgment is God's. But when we say God says that's wrong and we refuse to join in, there is an implicit condemnation that they see in that. And I think that explains why the world responds to our claims about Jesus' lordship and that Jesus alone is the way to God and to salvation, that we are sinful, that we do need forgiveness, that when the world hears us say that, they say, you are arrogant. To say that that way is the only right way, they say that because... To not join in is to implicitly condemn that way of life. Our goal is not to elevate ourselves as morally superior. We know we're saved by grace. And to think of elevating ourselves as morally superior 
superior is actually a worldly way of thinking. In fact, that's the very way of thinking that they are using to respond to our faithfulness to God with maligning and hostility. Our goal is to live for the will of God, though, to glorify Him in everything, to remain faithful, but it's going to lead to resentment. It's going to lead to backlash. It's going to be a cost. Listen, the transformation that God is working in your life brings him glory. And he gets glory even when we are responded to with hostility. Understand that. God is not less glorified when you are rejected for his namesake. God will have his glory. No one robs God of his glory. He is glorified in responding to the rejection with judgment, which is where Peter goes here. But when God is doing this transforming work in your life, it brings him glory, and the light of his glory exposes sin for what it is. It exposes rebellion. It exposes moral wrong. And therefore, they malign you when you don't join them. Being faithful, living lives that are distinct, make this point here, is not separation. It's distinction, but it's not separation. Or withdrawal. I've said it many times. I'll probably say it several more times before we finish the book of 1 Peter. God's exile may not withdraw, but must not compromise. Exiles may not withdraw, and they must not compromise. The question is, if there is no surprise at you're not joining them, the question is, is your life distinct? Is your life distinct? I fear that sometimes we are so busy trying to prove that we aren't legalists, that we aren't sticks in the mud, that the world can't tell the difference anymore. Now, there are some places in the world, there are some churches and some parts, maybe even of our country, where the opposite is true, where they live according to keeping this rule and this rule and this rule, and we wear clothes this way, and we don't play this game, and we don't go to this place. I don't think that's the danger for us. Quite frankly, the danger for us is to use our freedom and our claims for not being legalists as license. Is your life distinct? When you stand in the middle of not unbelievers, do they look at you with some surprise? No, they may be tolerant. Hey, that's good for you. It's not for me, it's for you. But they are baffled. They do not understand why you don't pursue the same things they do. Is your life distinct enough to get that kind of reaction? Exiles may not withdraw, but exiles must not compromise. That's what it means to be faithful. You can't be faithful if you withdraw. You can you can't be faithful if we all moved down into the middle of the, of the wilderness and had our own little Christian commune community to keep ourselves safe and insulated. But you cannot be faithful if you become just like the world either. You've been freed from that. You don't pursue those things. And so we are faithful to the end we are faithful to the end because we live distinctive lives. We are faithful to the end because, verse 5, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So for now, during the time in the flesh, the time of our exile, 
We are subject to their hostility just as Jesus was. We are subject to it. But that will be reversed because it is God who is the final judge. God is the one who judges, Peter says, the living and the dead, meaning that his judgment is universal and that death is no escape from that judgment. When the judge, capital J, holds court, everyone, living and dead, will give an account to him. So, whether a person lives for human passions or whether a person lives for the will of God matters for eternity. It has eternal consequences. Which helps us understand what Peter means in verse 6 then. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. This does not mean that the gospel was preached to them after they were dead, as if the gospel were preached to dead people, but it was preached to those who are now dead while they were alive. That's what Peter's saying. But they are now dead, and he's pointing to those who have already died. Not that they heard the gospel after they had died, but those who had heard the gospel while they were alive but are now dead. And here's the reason why the gospel was preached to them, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Literally, it says this, and this is re- it should be translated this way. Though judged in flesh according to men or mankind, humanity, they might live in spirit according to God. Not the way God lives, but according to the way God gives life. So though it reads awkwardly, Peter's point is simply this. Ready? The gospel is preached to people in this life, which is ruled by humanity's judgment. What people say is right and wrong. Who gets rejected and who gets accepted? The gospel is preached to living people in this life so that they might be vindicated under God's judgment in the next life. That's what Peter's saying. Those who are dead are already destined for God's judgment according to their response to the gospel. A right response to the gospel now is the only hope a person has to be vindicated in God's judgment after death. A life that is distinct from the world's immorality and a life that is attacked for that distinction is a life that demonstrates that it is ready for the final judgment. Because we don't live this life for this life. We live this life for the life to come. We have to. This is Peter's whole point in writing the letter to God's elect exiles. It's what exile is. God is glorified by that resilience. His worth and his beauty and his trustworthiness are displayed before the world by our persevering confidence in this eternal justice that God will one day judge and he will set all things right. And we put all our confidence in that. Peter said that over and over again in this letter. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you. God is glorified by our our faithfulness to the end, even when it means standing against an overwhelming flood. God is, lastly, glorified by our faithfulness to each other. He is glorified by our faithfulness to each other. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. 
There you go. The end of all things is at hand. The phrase at hand means near. It means that these events, this final judgment, Jesus' return is the next thing in the program. The stage is set. The times are moving toward this. And while the world blindly paints all of its pictures of apocalypse sometimes, of utopia at other times, why are those two genres so popular? Dystopian, apocalyptic, end of the world, and utopia, where everybody's happy. We're all achieving unity in the world. All of world history and the times that we live in are headed toward this event, which is that God judges humanity. God judges the universe. And it is the next thing in the program. Nothing else happens before that. And secondly... The end of all things is at hand means that it can happen anytime. It can happen anytime. It's not a measure of time by saying it's at hand, meaning that somehow we can know, well, that means a couple of years, or that means a decade, or however long. But it means that it can happen at any time. We use the term imminent. Jesus is coming, and the final judgment are imminent. That's what Peter means when he says the end of all things is at hand. The resolution to history. The passing of this realm and the time of God's rule and heaven and kingdom are coming. have already started, but the end is at hand. This doesn't mean that we quit our jobs. It doesn't mean that we all sell our homes and move into tents on the Mount of Olives and set up for Jesus to descend or anything. We don't abandon responsibility. We don't abandon people, relationships. We don't abandon society. We do not withdraw. It does mean we should be, as Peter says here, self-controlled. And sober-minded, or the word means clear-minded, for the sake of our prayers. So this is the opposite of being driven by our passions. This is the opposite of being drunk, of trying to inebriate and numb ourselves to everything. To try to escape our emptiness and pain. This is the opposite of escapism. This is pursuing God in prayer, being sober-minded, being self-controlled. If the end is at hand, then there's to be a certain seriousness and a certain urgency to how we live as the people of God. It doesn't mean we live as the gloomy enemies of all fun and joy. That would be abandoning life. That would be abandoning people and society. But it means we live deliberately. It means we live with purpose. We don't live frivolously, with flippancy. We don't live carelessly. Peter's main concern is our prayers. Self-control, this clear-mindedness, leads us to seek God's help. It leads us to seek his wisdom in evil days. Our prayers are our way of trusting him, receiving guidance for living rightly. We need prayer to know how to not join in the flood. Not every decision is so simple or easy. Prayer is the lifeline to guidance. Prayer is the lifeline to power. And so Peter says the first step in being faithful to each other is to be self-controlled and clear-minded for the sake of your prayers. 
and we're to live this out as a local church. We're to live this out as Crossway Fellowship. Crossway Fellowship is to live deliberately and purposefully in our relationships with each other. Because Jesus' community of faith is, and you can see what Peter's doing here. Peter is saying that this community, this church, is the alternative to the toxins and the hostility of the culture. While facing rejection from an unbelieving world, the people of God are to find refuge among themselves. That this people, this church is a refuge for the people of God. That this is a place to find courage and healing from each other. Peter adds to prayer, then love and hospitality and service. This is the place where Christians are to find a place to belong. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. To love earnestly means to to love with zeal, to love with fervor. I think what Peter's really getting at is that an earnest love is a love that overcomes difficulty. It's deep. It stands the test. That when love is tested, an earnest love overcomes. It perseveres. Love one another earnestly. Because love covers a multitude of of sins. In other words, love overlooks or discounts a lot of wrongs that are done against you. Yes, reconciliation is sometimes necessary. There are times when we need to sit down and work through offenses or hurt because someone has treated us wrongly And maybe we've treated them wrongly. There are times when we need to confess sin and be restored to each other and reconcile. But there is also something to be said for loving others in such a way that we absorb the offense and we discount it in Jesus' name. That we cover other people's sins against us. That's not talking about ignoring immorality in somebody's life that we ignore when somebody sins is talking about being wronged or harmed within the body it's talking about someone has wronged me but instead of taking that and nursing it and making a big deal out of it i just say you know what how often have i wronged other people i'm maybe not even aware of it all the time but i've wronged plenty of people i've sinned against other people And the Lord knows how often I've sinned against him. And he went to the cross. It's taking the wrong that someone has done to you and leaving it at the cross, which means not brooding over it, not nursing a grudge. That's love covering a multitude of sins. This covering of sins by loving each other protects the body. It protects this refuge as the body of Christ. Peter says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Don't let the spirit of the world that resents, that rejects, that maligns, that nurses grudges, that's offended so easily infiltrate the believing community, this church. Keep loving one another because loving each other covers over a multitude of sins. So what do you do when you're wronged, when someone's done you harm? Well, if you're self-controlled and clear-minded, sober-minded, and in prayer, the Lord will give you understanding of whether or not there needs to be reconciliation or whether or not you need to love and cover a multitude of sins. 
Peter goes on, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This hospitality. He's talking about be welcoming. He's talking about generosity, warmth. Accept one another. Understand each other. He's really talking about is an open-heartedness. And he, he may be calling upon the churches that he's writing to to be prepared to open their homes for gathering and for worship. That would have been a, a very concrete application of this. We are to show hospitality. We're to have an open-heartedness toward people, even if the living room's not vacuumed, even if the sink has some dishes in it, even if the home is not perfect. Now, if you've got the flu in your house, do not show hospitality, okay? <laughs> you quarantine. Maybe Peter should have said that. Quarantine during illness, okay? But we show hospitality. We as a church try to do that when we're gathered here on Sunday mornings. It's what a lot of you do. When you greet here at Crossway, you are showing hospitality on behalf of the whole church. And as a whole church, when people are guests with us, if you're a guest here, you will, be, uh, you, and you will not be able to get out of here. You'll have to bolt for the door, and some people do. They come in, they sit, they listen. These people are too nice. I'm out of here. And they bolt for the door. I get it. You want some anonymity when you're a guest. You won't get a lot of anonymity here. Someone will say hi. Someone will ask you how you ended up here this morning. Okay. But that's hospitality. When we host community groups, when we host meals, those are opportunities for and expressions of hospitality. So everything from individual hospitality, taking somebody out for a cup of coffee, to corporate, church-wide hospitality, putting on meals, Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling, not out of a sense of duty, not complaining about it, but without grumbling. So keep loving one another earnestly, show hospitality without grumbling, and as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, let's stop right here. Peter is talking about gifts. This is the same word that the New Testament uses many times to identify spiritual gifts. Though here, Peter does not use the word spirit or spiritual. I do think this is what he's talking about, but he's talking about it in its broadest, fullest sense, without a lot of details or categories or classifications, he's saying that everything that God by his grace has supplied, you are stewards of these things. Serve one another. Serve one another. That takes time. That takes sacrifice. That takes living deliberately with purpose, serve one another as good stewards. How is it a stewardship? Well, you are called to oversee, watch, to oversee the benefits that others are to receive from what God has given to you. That's how we live in the church. It's what it means to belong to the people of God. And there is a lot to steward because there is a great supply of grace. There's a great supply of grace, and there is a great diversity of grace as good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, this was several months ago, but back in chapter 1, verse 6, Peter used the same word to encourage us because we are experiencing various trials Trials of every shape, every color, every size, every intensity. And now Peter says that God has grace gifted his people with gifts of every size, every shape, every color, every intensity. 
It's almost as though Peter says, if these are the trials and the hardships of every size and color and shape that you're facing in your exile, then in the refuge that are the people of God, I will supply every shape, every size, every color of grace for you to serve each other. It's the same word. And Peter then puts these gifts into two big categories, speaking and serving. Though using any gift is really serving others, even speaking. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. So when you serve each other through speaking, through words, You are to speak as one who speaks oracles of God, and whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So, through gifts of teaching, exhortation, God speaks into the lives of his people through other believers. Through those gifts, God is speaking into each of our lives through other people's gifts. Don't treat that gift flippantly. That's what Peter's saying. Serve, be deliberate, be purposeful. Rather, serve others by honing your words, by knowing where the right word belongs at the right time. And through gifts of service, mercy, giving, God helps his people. How does God help us? By gifting those within the body to Give his help to be conduits of his aid. So don't sit on the bench. That's what Peter's saying, really. The end is at hand. The time has come. This world is passing. We're in exile. And the culture as a whole is hostile. The church is a refuge. Love each other. Show hospitality to each other. And serve each other. Build each other up with God's grace. How's God's grace preserve us as the people of God? Through the gifts that he's given each and every one of us to exercise, to steward. There's a stewardship. Stewardship, by the way, entails accountability. (laughs) If it's been given as a stewardship to each of us, then each of us will give an account for whether or not we were faithful to each other in serving each other. So the stewardship then of these grace gifts is to be done prayerfully, is to be done lovingly. And our faithfulness to each other brings God glory. It brings God glory in the world. The church, when we live like this, this ought to be a public refuge that the world sees It says, those people treat each other differently. Those people work together differently. They are committed to each other differently. They're faithful to each other. We bring God glory, which was the goal that we began with, wasn't it? Be faithful in exile. Why? That in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, because to him, belong glory, dominion forever and ever.